of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the October 2011 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. The first two papers of this issue are short communications. The first is entitled Prevalence and Risk Factors for Hypovitaminosis D in Young Patients with Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Papa and colleagues. These authors looked at the prevalence of hypovitaminosis D in children with inflammatory bowel disease followed at the Boston Children's Hospital from 2006 to 2009 and tried to identify potential risk factors associated with low 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels. There were 448 patients with either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and in 58% of the patients, there was at least one modestly low 25-hydroxyvitamin D level. 5.8% of the population of both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease patients had significant reductions to levels less than 15 nanograms per per milliliter, with surprisingly a higher percentage of ulcerative colitis patients at the deficient level, 8.4% of the population, than the Crohn's disease patients, 4.2% of the population. After correcting for age, season, BMI, and other variables with known impact on vitamin D levels in normal children, they found that sedimentation rate inversely correlated with vitamin D level and serum albumin correlated directly with vitamin D level. Surprisingly, the authors did not find any increase in vitamin D deficiency of these children over the normal population of children in the Boston area. The authors were also surprised at these results and were at a loss to explain them, except to point out the deficiencies of retrospective studies. The second short communication is entitled Zinc Monotherapy from Time of Diagnosis for Young Pediatric Patients with Presymptomatic Wilson Disease by Mizuoki and colleagues. Oral zinc is often used to treat patients with Wilson disease, most often as a maintenance medication after an initial cupresis produced by other stronger drugs. These authors report their experience with four patients, five to seven years old, with pre-symptomatic Wilson disease, who they treated with zinc as their only therapy. One patient was a sibling of a Wilson disease patient, and the other three were picked up during investigations of asymptomatic transaminase elevations. None of the patients was jaundiced or had hepatic synthetic abnormalities. Using zinc monotherapy at 25 milligrams two or three times daily, the authors report no complications, rapid normalization of transaminases, and maintenance of urinary copper excretion between one and three milligrams per kilogram per day for up to two years. The first original gastroenterology article is entitled Celiac Disease in Children with Diarrhea in Four Cities in China by Wang and colleagues. It is widely believed that Chinese children have an extremely low incidence of celiac disease. The aim of this prospective study was to see whether celiac disease might be a cause of chronic diarrhea in Chinese children. 
Between 2005 and 2008, 118 patients with chronic diarrhea in the pediatric hospitals of four major cities, Shanghai, Wuhan, Jinan, and Chengdu, were evaluated. In addition to clinical history and physical examination, all children had IgA and IgG tissue transglutaminase measured. Those with elevated levels went on to duodenal biopsy. 14 children, or 11.9% of the population, had celiac disease, and two children had positive serology with negative biopsies. The authors state that these 14 children are the first reported cases of celiac disease in Chinese children with chronic diarrhea. They responded to gluten-free diet as any other patient with celiac disease. The authors were unable to perform HLA typing and also, unfortunately, they didn't report on the extent of gluten exposure in their patients compared to the rest of the children with chronic diarrhea. This article is accompanied by a nice commentary from Katasi and Alarida that discusses the possible reasons for the appearance of celiac disease in China and other countries where it has not previously been reported. Among other speculations, they wonder whether the westernization of the Chinese diet may now be selecting children who were always at genetic risk, but had not had enough wheat exposure to produce symptomatic disease. The next GI article is entitled Impaired Mucosal Barrier Function in the Small Intestine of the Cystic Fibrosis Mouse by Delisle and colleagues. Intestinal barrier function is impaired in humans with cystic fibrosis. The two factors probably responsible are reduced activity of the lipopolysaccharide detoxifying enzyme intestinal alkaline phosphatase, which is encoded by the AKP3 gene, and increased mucosal permeability. The objective of this study was to see whether the CF mouse model, which mainly has intestinal disease, could be used to investigate intestinal barrier function. The investigators wanted to see whether interventions beneficial to the CF mouse intestinal phenotype, that is, broad-spectrum antibiotics and osmotic laxatives, would improve barrier function in the intestine, and whether administration of exogenous intestinal alkaline phosphatase would have any impact on barrier function. AKP3 gene expression was measured by reverse PCR, and the intestinal alkaline phosphatase activities was also measured. Intestinal permeability was assessed by rhodamine dextran plasma levels following gavage. The CF mice had only 40% of the mRNA expression of the AKP3 gene and only 30% of the alkaline phosphatase enzyme activity compared with wild-type mice. Oral antibiotics and colite therapy produced normalization of gene expression and enzyme activity in the CF mice. The CF mice had a five-fold greater transfer of rhodamine dextran from gut lumen to blood than did the wild-type mice, and again, antibiotic and laxative treatment reduced the intestinal permeability of the CF mouse. Administration of exogenous purified intestinal alkaline phosphatase to the CF mice reduced intestinal permeability to wild-type levels and reduced small bowel bacterial overgrowth by more than 80%. The authors conclude that the CF mouse intestine has impaired mucosal barrier function similar to human CF patients. Interventions that improve other aspects of the CF intestinal phenotype also increased intestinal alkaline phosphatase activity and decreased intestinal permeability, 
suggesting that this therapy might be appropriate for children with cystic fibrosis. The next article is entitled Maternal Psychopathology and Psychomotor Development of Children with GERD by Kara Sitton and colleagues. In this prospective study, maternal psychopathology, maternal child interactions, and psychomotor development of infants carrying a diagnosis of GERD was compared with normal children. The diagnosis of GERD was based either on the severity of fussiness and vomiting or on pH probe studies. The case group included 39 children and their mothers, and the comparison group included 39 healthy children and their mothers. The groups were matched for age, gestational age, socioeconomic status, and sex. Scales used for the psychiatric assessment of mothers were the Beck Anxiety Inventory, the Hamilton Rating Scale for Depression, the Eating Attitudes Test, and the Revised Experiences in Close Relationships Test. The children's developmental levels were assessed by the Brunet Lazine Revised Test. All of the psychometric tests were significantly more abnormal in the mothers of infants with GERD. Forced feeding and maternal perception that the child's feeding was insufficient were associated with a high level of maternal attachment-related anxiety and avoidance. Children with GERD had significantly lower Brunet-Lazine revised developmental scores. These authors draw an important conclusion from this study, namely that maternal psychopathology, especially insecure attachment, may play a role in the feeding problems leading to a diagnosis of GERD in children. They suggest that children with GERD should be examined for maternal psychopathology and feeding problems so that maladaptive feeding behaviors can receive appropriate intervention before the development of feeding refusal behavior. In a commentary on this paper, Dr. Carlos Lifshitz supports the suggestion of the authors. In his words, he recommends thinking outside the box in infants with clinically diagnosed GERD who have fussiness and poor feeding as their major symptoms. Speaking specifically to us in pediatric GI, he suggests that before repeating tests or escalating anti-reflux therapy, a gastroenterologist should consider the anxieties of the mother, whether they be primary or secondary to the child's symptoms, and address them with education, emotional support, or even psychotherapy in some cases. The next article is entitled Varicella Immunity in Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Ansari and colleagues. Clinicians starting corticosteroids in patients with newly diagnosed IBD have generally checked the patient's immunity to varicella zoster out of concern for the reports of severe varicella infection in immunocompromised patients, especially those on corticosteroids. In the era of varicella immunization, these authors wondered, these authors wondered whether the risk had diminished. They reviewed all 163 of the charts of pediatric patients diagnosed with IBD at the University of Buffalo from 2005 to 2009. The mean age of the population was 12 years. 62% had Crohn's disease, 33% ulcerative colitis, and 5% indeterminate colitis. A total of 66% of all of the patients had a history of either disease or vaccination. Measurable titers against varicella were found in only 77% of all patients. 
The authors conclude that it is still in the patient's best interest to evaluate varicella immunity at the time of diagnosis of IBD, as it will allow for more appropriate post-exposure therapy. They also discuss the difficulties in administering varicella vaccine to patients once immunosuppression has begun. The next paper is entitled Short Course on Dancitron for the Prevention of Methotrexate-Induced Nausea in Children with Crohn's Disease by Kempinska and colleagues. The use of methotrexate in Crohn's disease is sometimes limited by the occurrence of nausea. The authors looked retrospectively at their own experience at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario from 2001 to 2009 to see whether short course and dancitron had a significant impact on nausea. 64 patients received methotrexate during this time period. The mean age of starting methotrexate was 13.6 years. Patients receiving only one or two doses of methotrexate or who stopped taking the medicine for reasons other than nausea were excluded. This left 50 patients who received ondansetron premedication in a tapering dose regimen before each methotrexate administration. Only one patient developed nausea in the first three months of therapy. In contrast, six of the 10 patients not premedicated with ondansetron reported nausea following methotrexate within three months. Four of these six patients subsequently received ondansetron and had no further complaints. When ondansetron was discontinued, five of the 50 patients developed nausea with subsequent doses of methotrexate, but responded to reinstitution of ondansetron. Some children developed anticipatory nausea, that is six of the 60 patients or 10%, and three experienced nausea relief after initiating premedication with ondansetron. This retrospective study is encouraging, but the author's conclusion states that a prospective study is needed. The next article is entitled, Detection of Pepsinogen in the Neonatal Lung and Stomach by Immunohistochemistry by L. Abiad and colleagues. Pepsinogen, measured by enzyme activity levels in pulmonary secretions, has been used to support a suspicion of pulmonary aspiration of gastric contents. These authors carefully evaluated the pepsinogens A and C in stomach and lungs to see whether they were specific either to lung or stomach, and thus to allow them to be used as markers of aspiration. Pulmonary and gastric tissues collected post-mortem were immunohistochemically stained for pepsinogen C and pepsinogen A. 16 infants of gestation ages 21 to 37 weeks with a variety of causes of death were evaluated. Gestational age at birth ranged from 21 to 37 weeks. Pepsinogen A was detected in 12 of 13 stomachs, mainly in the chief cells, and none was located in the lungs. On the other hand, Pepsinogen C was detected in all stomach sections and in 9 of 16 lung samples, mainly in the type 2 pneumocytes. Pepsinogen C was not seen in any infants less than 23 weeks gestation. These findings led the authors to conclude that pepsinogen C is produced in both the stomach and the lung after 25 weeks, and thus Previous study results using only an enzymatic analysis for pepsin to detect aspiration may not be accurate. They recommend that after 25 weeks gestation, staining for pepsinogen A is the only test 
that would specifically detect aspiration of gastric contents. The first original article in Hepatology and Nutrition is entitled Effects of Long-Term Parenteral Nutrition on Serum Lipids, Plant Sterols, Cholesterol Metabolism, and Liver Histology in Pediatric Intestinal Failure by Kervinen and colleagues. There have been studies suggesting that the plant sterols in parental nutrition fluids may contribute to intestinal failure-associated liver disease. These authors looked at the relationship between serum plant sterols, liver function and histology, cholesterol metabolism, and characteristics of parenteral nutrition in 11 patients with intestinal failure who were receiving long-term parenteral nutrition. These patients were of mean age 6.3 years and were studied prospectively for about nine months, during which they had repeated measurements of serum lipids, non-cholesterol steroids, including plant sterols, and liver enzymes. Plant sterol contents of the parenteral nutrition fluids were analyzed. Liver biopsy was obtained in eight patients. Twenty healthy children served as controls. Median percentage of daily energy requirement received parenterally was 48%. Mean lipid administration was 0.9 grams per kilo per day. Respective amounts of the parenteral nutrition cytosterol, campesterol, evanasterol, and sigmasterol were 683, 71, 57, and 45 milligrams per kilogram per day, respectively. Median serum concentrations of cytosterol, avanasterol, sigmasterol were significantly higher in patients than in controls. Levels of campesterol were equivalent in the two groups. Serum cholesterol precursors were higher in patients than controls. Serum liver enzymes remained close to normal range. Gamma-glutamyl transferase correlated well with plant sterol levels in the serum. Liver fibrosis was seen in five patients who had increased serum plant sterol levels. The authors conclude that serum plant sterol levels increase moderately during olive oil-based parenteral nutrition and correlate positively with the percent of calories delivered by parenteral nutrition and with serum gamma-glutamyl transferase levels. Despite well-preserved liver function, Histology in five patients with increased plant sterol levels revealed significant hepatic fibrosis. The next study is entitled A Pre-Post-Retrospective Study of Patients with Cystic Fibrosis and Gastrostomy Tubes by Best and colleagues. The aim of this study was to assess the efficacy of gastrostomy tube placement on the nutritional status and pulmonary function of patients with cystic fibrosis. Data were collected from the Minnesota Cystic Fibrosis Database. 46 subjects with at least 5% predicted forced expiratory volume in one second and one BMI percentile measurement before and after G-tube placement were included. Median BMI values were compared two years before and one, two, and four years after G-tube placement. Longitudinal mixed model analysis was used to assess the effect of G-tube placement on percent predicted FEV1. To assess the impact of the baseline percent predicted FEV1 before G-tube placement on efficacy, the estimated FEV1 change was regressed against the FEV1 level at placement. The authors found, through careful analysis of pre- and post-G-tube pulmonary functions, 
that G-tube placement was associated with a significant improvement in both BMI and percent predicted FEV1, except in women. The change in lung function after G-tube placement was not dependent on the level of lung function at G-tube placement. This study and a flood of others are showing clearly that a focus on adequate nutrition is a major factor in preserving and promoting lung function in patients with cystic fibrosis. This concludes the JPGN podcast for October 2011. For more information regarding the contents of this issue or to access the complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the NASPGN website at naspigan.org. JPGN is the official journal of Espigan and Naspigan. The co-editors are Mel Heyman and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Okay.